All right. Well, we are on part two of uh, core values of the kingdom. Uh, last week we started, and and we're gonna we'll we'll wrap this up next week. So just doing three parts, particularly looking at uh, what's known as the beatitudes or the core values. And we explained last week that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is laying out the treatise of his kingdom, and that he starts that with these eight values, eight core values. And they're not just a list of do's and don'ts. They're actually his own value system. It's what he values and what he calls the subjects of his kingdom into uh, to live these life values, to live as, as subjects of the kingdom. This is how we're supposed to live. And so uh, last week we looked at the first two. We looked at being poor in spirit and we looked at uh, spiritual mourning. Today we're going to look at uh, meekness, hunger for righteousness, and mercy. We're going to look at those three today. Now, you can get the notes online uh, at uh, prayermissionschurch.com, and I would encourage you to go ahead and grab those notes, and if you're watching on our stream, they'll put it in the, the comment section, the link to the notes, but I want to encourage you to grab the notes because I'm going to lay out, before we talk about those three values tonight, I want to lay out something about the structure of the, the Beatitudes that's super important if we're going to understand what's going on in the Beatitudes. And uh, I said last week that we're going to do this a little bit more like a, like a Bible class, and it's going to be a little bit more involved, a little bit more detailed. And so uh, I want to talk uh, first about the structure that Jesus lays out. Last week, I gave some background and overview. Uh, tonight, I want to give a little bit of the structure, and then we'll talk about the three core values. So when you look at the eight Beatitudes, the eight core values of the kingdom, what you realize is that Jesus is using a literary device. And the literary device is something that would be common for a Hebrew uh, writer or a Hebrew speaker to use. And the device is called a chiasm. Chiasm, it's C-H-I-A-S-M, a chiasm. And what it means, uh, what a chiasm is, it's a way to present um, information or present a topic that it, it shows up in a pattern. It's a really interesting way. And especially in Hebrew writing, this pattern would show up maybe in like, it would be A, B, B, A. And so it would, it would kind of, you know, reciprocate. It would start off, it would go to a certain place, and then it would come back to that certain place. So in the Sermon on the Mount, in the core values, we actually see that this is a chiasm in the, in the core values, and the way that we can easily see it is the first core value has a promise attached to it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom, okay? The last core value, blessed are the persecuted, theirs is the kingdom. It's the same promise. And so what you have is that this structure is really, really important when you're understanding what Jesus is doing in giving us these eight core values. We tend to think linear. We think one through eight, and, and the way that we tend to think is either number one is the most important or number eight is the most important. In, in Hebrew writing and Hebrew speaking, when they build this way with this chiasm, it's really different. The middle part is what's the most important. So they build it like a mountain. They start here, they build, build, build to the middle, which is the most important points, and then they build down, okay? And so what Jesus does is pretty brilliant. He's a pretty brilliant God. He's a pretty brilliant man. And he lays out the core values in a very unique chiasm. He starts with A, then he goes B, B, C, C, 
Then he goes, B-B-A, back to the beginning. And, and why is that important? It's important because the two middle core values, which we will touch tonight, are actually the main point of these core values. It's actually what he's built these core values, what he's driving for. He wants us to take away the middle point. Now, uh, a couple things about this structure. Eight core values. The first four go together. The last four go together. There's two subgroups. Now, the whole, all eight make a whole, but there's two subgroups. And you can see it in what those values are. The first four all have a Godward direction. We're poor in spirit. We're mourning and longing for Jesus. We're meek in understanding our poverty, which I'll go into in just a moment. And we hunger and thirst for righteousness. All four of those, those first four are all Godward, okay? And because it's built in this chiasm, the fourth one is the one he's actually wanting us to take away as the critical component, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great Bible teacher, he would say that the, the fourth core value is the most important, hunger and thirst for righteousness. I would say hunger and thirst for righteousness stands right next to the, right next to the fifth one because the way the chiasm is built, which is mercy. Hunger and thirst and mercy stand right next to each other. The last four, whereas the first four are Godward, the last four are horizontal or manward. So it's mercy toward men, pure in heart, which is ambitions in this life, uh, um, peacemakers, which is towards men, and how you carry yourself in being persecuted for righteousness, again, towards men. So the first four are Godward, the last four are manward, I'm making up words now, manward, but the central points are this, as it relates to walking out the values of the kingdom of God, I could summarize it by saying this, live your life hungering and thirsting for righteousness toward God and toward men always be merciful. That's what Jesus is doing. It's fantastic when you get under it, when you begin to understand how he's unpacking this, when you understand his brilliance as a speaker, uh, an, another hint that we know that these go together is the first four all begin with the same Greek letter. So when he's actually saying these things, he's saying them in Greek and he's actually doing them like a preacher would. The four Ps of the kingdom of God. <laughs> like he gives the first four with all the first letter being the same. So he's expressing this in a way that his hearers would have easily seen how he was grouping them. All right. Does that make sense? This chiasm is a really important literary device. Just a side note, because we're doing this as a Bible class. The book of Daniel, the whole book is laid out as a chiasm, with chapter 7 being the main, it's the, it's the mountaintop of the book. It's not, did you know Daniel, the book of Daniel is not laid out chronologically. It's laid out in a chiasm. Chapter 7 being the, the main point. So this happens over and over and over through the scripture, there's a cyclical way that Hebrew authors thought and wrote, and a chiasm is one of those sort of cycles. All right, if you're with me, say yeah. All right, you're mostly with me, it's good. I want to, oh, just I want to mention this other point. Just, just it's landing on me. I was just in the prayer room today just staring at this. Now, now you got to get this a little bit from my vantage point. I've written a book on the Sermon on the Mount, and I can... Undoubtedly, I mean, virtually every time I can reapproach the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord will speak to me new insights, things I've never seen before. But in this idea of these four, uh, first four values being uh, Godward and, and the second four values being manward, can you think of anything that is firstly Godward and then, then next uh, toward men? 
first and second commandment. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's easy to see that those first four values, Jesus is filling in the blanks how we love God and how we love men. It's interesting to me also that mercy, it would be this uh, important way that we express ourselves towards other people, mercy. But when, when God said his name to Moses in Exodus 34, he said, the Lord, the Lord God first, and the first attribute was merciful. And I think what, what the Lord tells us is this. He who is love, the first manifestation of love or the main manifestation of love is mercy. Mercy. All right. Let's take a look now at these three values we're going to cover tonight. Again, we're going to cover meekness, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and mercy. Now, the way uh, the chiasm works is these first three are going to build toward the fourth. So poor in spirit, spiritual mourning, which we covered last week, and then meekness, which we'll cover right now, it builds toward this most central and important thought, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So let's look at meekness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, for those of you that are just Bible nerds, he's quoting Psalm 37. He's actually quoting David. David gave us this value of the kingdom a thousand, you know, a thousand plus years earlier. And Jesus takes this value and says, this is a core value of the kingdom of God. It has a shocking promise, inherit the earth. So the way I like to say it is this, Jesus' leadership team in the age to come is going to be built from the meek of this age. Those who live their life in meekness in this age are going to inherit the earth. Now, that's not a figurative inheritance. That's Jesus Christ is coming to rule and reign. The believers from this age, it says in, in Revelation, we will sit on his throne with him and rule the nations. He will give us authority over the nations. And it's the meek from this age that will rule and reign with him in the next age. The meek shall inherit the earth. And so this concept of meek, meekness, is critical. Now, I'm going to give you a simple definition of meekness. Meekness is faithfully cultivating a servant's heart in order to attain the benefit of others above ourselves in regard to honor, privilege, and position. I'll say it again. Faithfully cultivating a servant's heart in order to attain the benefit of others above ourselves in regard to honor, privilege, and position. Now, as I said last week, when I began to really get under the core values and see what Jesus said that the subjects of his kingdom would live like, when I first came in contact with meekness, I realized meekness runs exactly the opposite direction of the natural inclination of my own heart. The natural inclination of my heart, and I think the human heart, is get for yourself everything you can, and it doesn't matter who is in the way, push them out of the way to get what you want. This is what so much of our society is built on, the whole concept of dog-eat-dog, or stepping on others to, to get to the goal that you want, these are concepts that, that are commonplace in, in business, in athletics, in, in all sorts of arenas, <clears throat> and even <clears throat> in the church. Oh, help me, Jesus. When I began to see that meekness is a critical value that Jesus expects, it struck me. It, it convicted me so deeply. 
because it was like the Lord showing me the photo album of my own life of when I wasn't operating in meekness, when I was operating in how I could live mostly for myself. And I think that what we tend to do is we see something like this, blessed are the meek, they're gonna inherit the earth, and we just, we just, we just play the long game with it. We go, I'll be meek eventually, after a while, I'll, you know, ultimately I'll be meek, but right now I need to get, I need to be for me. <laughs> I'm not doing meek, I'm doing me. And, and we, we, we get what we can for ourselves. And, and the Lord says, no, no, no. When you came to me, it wasn't so you would get for yourself. When you came to me, it was so that you would give me everything. You would come before me with poverty of spirit, with, with a heart of longing and desire, and you would humble yourself and live this way. And here's what I realized. There's no way without being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, without being born again, a person can live a truly meek life. Impossible. Because the sin nature so compels us to fight for self. It so compels us to get for self. How can I get for me? I want to build for me. I want to, to, to save for me. I want to protect for me. I want me, 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 me. There's a comedian and he talks about how people act like a me monster. And I think that's really the human state, isn't it? That's what sin in the human heart does. It causes us to live exactly opposite of meekness. And here's the deal. The way that we come to meekness is by gaining a right perspective on our status. What I think about when I think about meekness is it's actually recognizing your spiritual poverty, but not just realizing you're bankrupt, actually living in light of that, actually living that out. Um, there's a, there's a, a, a movie, um, Cinderella Man. It's about a boxer during the Great Depression and his manager, and, and the boxer loses everything, but his manager seems to be well taken care of. But uh, what happens is there's a scene where the boxer goes to the manager's house, and the manager still drives a big car, still lives in a fancy apartment. But what he does is when he opens the door to the apartment, he looks, and the manager has sold everything. He's got nothing. So he's kept his nice suits, he's kept his big car, but the family is literally living with no furniture, with no heat, with nothing. In other words, the man, the manager was, he was, he was poverty stricken, but he wasn't acting like it. He was trying to sh put off a, an image like he still had it together. And, and that is basically the opposite of meekness. And I think that that's so many people, it's like you know on the inside, you know you've got nothing. You've got nothing to offer. But because of our own shame and because of our own arrogance, we want to we present a front to the world. I've got it together. You can't tell me. I know. I, I, I know and I have something to offer and I am somebody. And, and by golly, you, I'm going to prove it to you. I am somebody. And the Lord goes, oh. Everybody knows you're bankrupt. Just be honest. Just be real. Just tell the truth. Don't act like you still got it going on. You know you're poor in spirit. Just be real about it. So he said, well, if I act that way, if I tell everybody that I'm in, I'm in need, I'm a needy person, they're just going to walk all over me. Yeah, I would, I would just ask you to think from a perspective standpoint. People may look down on you in this age, but the result is in the age to come, you inherit the earth. Would you prefer to be esteemed in the eyes of men now or esteemed in the eyes of God forever? I would much rather take the low position, not act like I got it all together, and just be honest. I am a needy man. I am a weak man. I need Jesus every day. And when I blow it, I have to repent. My, my most, the most important words that I say to my family, there's, there's three of them, I love you, and the second most important words are, I'm sorry. Because I blow it. 
and just being honest about our need, our spiritual poverty, this is meekness. And so firstly, the perspective that we have to get is who are we before God? He's infinite and we are created. He's transcendent without beginning, without end. There's nothing like him. There's no one like him. He's not just a little higher than the angels. He's of a completely different order than the angels. There's, a, there's an infinite gap, and there's God here, an infinite gap, and then the highest archangel, and then there's little bitty, bitty, bitty space, and then there's a single-celled amoeba, amoeba. And all of us that are created are in this little spot in an infinite gap, and God. Who are we before him? Jesus said it different ways, different places. He said, without me, you can do nothing. You have nothing. And you are nothing. And I've grown fond of just saying, you are my destiny. You are my future. You are my life. You're everything. You're my dream, Jesus. And it's having the proper perspective of who we are before God that's meekness. So we recognize that we're poverty-stricken and we live like it. We recognize that we are debilitated without him. That we, we need him in, in every facet of our lives. That without him we can do nothing. This is what meekness looks like. Um, for Jesus and for us, meekness takes on a, a different uh, uh, you know, application. For Jesus, meekness was power under restraint but for us it's truthfulness in poverty do you see the difference some people say well you you, you know you got to be uh, like jesus power under restraint yeah but the truth is we don't have any strength paul said it very clearly he said in my weakness his strength is made perfect and he said, uh, I would rather glory in weaknesses that the strength of God could be manifest through me. Because what's the alternative? If we try to bolster ourselves up in our own strength, God is opposed to the proud. But there's this unbelievable deposit of power that he releases to the humble. It's called grace. And this is what living a life of meekness is about. It's recognizing that we have nothing. We have nothing to offer. We're nothing without him. But with him, we have everything. That he alone is our source. He alone provides our ability. So the proper perspective uh, that we have to carry in our life is that our sin has completely disabled us, that we're fully disabled because of sin, but his grace has fully enabled us, delivered us from sin, cleansed us from the bondage of it, cleansed us from the repercussions of it, and his grace has fully enabled us. As long as we stay carrying our hearts in meekness and humility, grace abounds. But when we get in the flesh, try to express our own power, our own ability, God is opposed to the proud. This is such a critical, critical value of the kingdom. You can't live in Christ and stay in Christ if you rely on self. I like to say it this way. Meekness is living in humility because of the recognition of your own inability. It's recognizing that you're fully incapable without him. Jesus said this in Matthew 11, verse 28. He said, I have a yoke that I'm inviting you to come under. Now, this is an agricultural example. He's talking about oxen that had basically these, 
these yokes on them. They were basically saddles, but they, the, the saddle would attach multiple oxen together, and they would use the oxen to plow in a field. And, and so what they would do is they would actually um, yoke baby oxen with the mama oxen. And, and so they would get them all out there plowing this yoke. Now, the baby oxen, they weren't doing anything. They were just learning how to plow. But the mama would be the one actually pulling the plow in the field. So Jesus, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, he says this, Come to me, all you who are, are labor and are heavy laden. I'm going to give you rest. He goes, here's how I'm going to give you rest. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly or humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He goes, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And there's so many components of that passage, but the idea is if we'll come under the yoke with Jesus, he will do the heavy lifting and we learn from him. We learn what he's like. The, the, it was Jesus' meekness that caused him to come as an infant born in a barn instead of as a dominating dictator. Isaiah identifies Jesus as the servant of rulers. Jesus, at the Last Supper, sits down and washes the grime off of his disciples' feet. And, and, and Peter is so offended with the idea that Jesus would get down and, and wipe that filth off of him. He says, no, 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 you can't wash me, Lord. What's going on there? Peter's arrogance is on display. Now, let's not give Peter a bad rap because we would all be in that. You're God, you're washing my feet. No, 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 no. He goes, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you and I, are, we, we can't walk together. If you don't let me serve you, we cannot walk together. And, uh, and he goes, then fine, wash my whole body. He goes, Peter, stop. Let me lead. <laughs> if I wash your feet, you'll be fine. Let me serve you this way, and you serve others this way. I'll tell you a story. I was uh, in China. I've told this story before. Uh, but I was in China. It was, my, um, it was actually uh, my first trip to China. And I was with this pastor um, who had, he's, he, he suffered for Jesus, been in prison, beaten. Um, his testimony is, is, is shocking and fantastic. Some other time I'll tell the whole testimony of his, his experiences in prison where God sparked a revival through this man. But this pastor has about 4 million people in his church. Four million, with a million, four million in his church. House churches all over the nation. And, uh, and he had me there to, to speak in his Bible school. And I'm thinking, there's just zero reason I should be speaking in this man's Bible school because everything that he knows and has experienced you know, in the Lord is, I, I mean, I just sat there and asked him questions every break. I just sit there at his, at his feet, just asking him questions. And, and, and these guys, they, I mean, he and his, his leaders, they overserved us. They overstuffed us. It was, it was unbelievable. Um, and uh, anyway, lots of fun stories in there. But uh, after a, a week of, of them overserving us, I mean, not letting us take our own plate and put it in the garbage, not, not letting us do a thing. Uh, he, he's going to take me to the airport. And, uh, and, and I'm, on, I'm on the way, uh, you know, I'm going to take my bag and I'm going to go my, to my gate and, and he's going he's gonna to walk with me. Well, I, I get my bag out of the car and I begin to roll it. And, and when I do, uh, one of the wheels breaks off. And, and so it's, it's one of these um, suitcases that has the two wheels on the back. So if you have a broken wheel, there's no rolling this thing anymore. You have to, you have to lug it. And this is one of my first long international trips. And I learned later I can pack about 15 pounds and go for two weeks easy. But on this trip, it was one of my first ones. And I, I packed 50 pounds. I mean, I just loaded the suitcase up. I brought a bunch of stuff I didn't need. It was just ridiculous. 
and it's all in the suitcase and the wheel comes off and I begin to pick up the case and I'm going to carry it and uh, he comes over and now he's struggling with me and this is how these guys are. They will not let you do anything. They, they are going to serve you till you can't take it anymore and, uh, and, and I'm like, you know, this, this is, I've been humiliated all week because of the way they've served me. It's just been terrible, horrifying. My pride was getting crushed. And, uh, and now this wheel, and I'm gonna, no, and he's gonna try to take it from me. And I was like, no, no, I'm not letting you. So I start like struggling with him, trying to get the bag. And he's got his hand on the thing. And I got my hand on pulling it. And he goes, no. And I go, no. And he goes, no. And I go, no. And he goes, no. <laughs> And I go, <laughs> okay, because he, he clearly outranks me in the kingdom. And I sat there, and I watched, and he picks up my bag, and he starts walking, and he's lugging my bag, and it's, it's heavy, and he is having a hard time with it. This man has been beaten, bloodied, tortured for Jesus, and I'm walking behind him like I'm some dignitary and he's my attendant and it was like a half mile where he's carrying this bag and I'm walking behind him I'm just crying I'm just undone and and it's like I don't I don't know how to receive this I don't know what to do with this and what I realize is I'm too prideful to be able to let this moment minister to me and I'm just so I'm so ashamed and and I had to literally process it later in prayer and I and I realized when Jesus said in the kingdom he who is the greatest shall be your servant he wasn't actually giving us a way to make our way to the top he was actually explaining to us the way of the kingdom that the one who is the greatest is the servant. And when he yanked that bag out of my hand and told me no, he, he wasn't trying to be humble. He was actually embodying what it means to live as one who has authority in the kingdom. He was outranking me, so he was serving me. Just like Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Just like Jesus said when he returns, he will serve us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because in the kingdom, meekness is an emblem of authority, not vice versa. And so people that live as Christians trying to figure their way to the top, they are operating by a value system that's completely the culture of this world but those who live trying to find their way to the bottom, to live authentically in light of their spiritual bankruptcy, they're actually living by the value system that Jesus laid out. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. It's an emblem of authority. Does that make sense? All right, Matthew uh, 5, verse 6. We'll go to the next core value. I, I, I'm sorry that we have to go through these just quickly. I um, would probably ordinarily take an hour per, but let's just keep moving for our purposes here. All right, now, as I said, he gives us those first three to build to this one, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Matthew 5, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. For years and years and years, I read this as blessed are those who hunger and thirst for a touch from God because they're gonna get filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how I read it. And so I would always, if I was ever preaching on spiritual hunger, I'd always pull this verse out. I'd blessed are those who hunger and thirst, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. They're gonna be filled. And that's not what Jesus was saying here. I think you could apply it that way but I, that's not what he's saying. What he's actually saying is hungering and thirsting for righteousness is the, the manner of life Christians are to live in this age. 
And it's, it boils down to this. If you'll hunger for righteousness, you get filled with righteousness. And, and so I like to say it this way. Uh, hungering and thirsting for righteousness is, is saying, God, I want to love what you love. I want to hate what you hate. I, I want to be so... Uh, into what you think, what you feel, what you say, your ways. I want your ways. I don't want my own. I want to be filled with all that is you so that I can live this out. And the only path to being filled with righteousness is through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's only by the power of the blood of Jesus that we can walk out this this righteousness. This is the central value that we're supposed to express towards God. I, I like to think of it as being possessed with the nature of God. When we, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we're saying, I want to be like you. I don't want to be like me. I don't want to be filled with all my ways, all my thoughts, all my opinions. I want your ways, your thoughts, your words, your opinions. And this is so central to how Christians are to act. It's the, it's the pinnacle way that we're supposed to express our hunger and our love towards God. Fill me with your ways. Make me like you. Conform me to the image of your son. These are all expressions of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And one of the, the, the things that has my, my soul concerned about the status of, of the church right now is we are filled with so many ways of the world. We, we, we don't exhibit a hunger for righteousness. We're unwilling to bridle our tongue We're unwilling to take the low place. We're unwilling to rather be wronged. Sometimes I wonder what it would be like if Jesus showed up and he just said, hey, let's have coffee. I think we'd all like, oh, no way. Jesus just asked me for coffee. Wow. And he goes, okay, cool. Uh, What do you want to talk about? And you go, I don't know, Jesus. What what do you want to talk about? He goes, let's just talk about a few things that I value. And, And we go, Oh, so cool. Yes. Tell me what you value. He goes, you know what I love? I love taking the last place, the lowest place, the least place. How about you? And we'd be like, um, um, what? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. I love, you know what I love? I love working out difficult, hard things getting in the middle, being crucified so other people can experience blessing, bringing peace. I I love that. How about you? I love being filled with only what my father says, only what my father does, thinking only his thoughts and living out only his ways. When I was on the earth, he said, I could do nothing except for I, the father shows me what to do and tells me what to say. I, I go, you're, but you're God. He goes, yeah. And I was completely submitted to the ways and the will of my father. I love that, being fully submitted to his ways. How about you? And I've just put myself in the other side of that coffee conversation so many times, and I go, Lord, I'm not like you. I want to be like you but I'm not like you. And in those moments of broken honesty, he goes, that's good because you're hungering for righteousness. You're not hungering to be affirmed by men. You're not hungering for a position. You're not hungering for some, even even revival. I, I love revival. I want revival. But so often we get more committed to the ends that we think God wants than we are to God himself. I want to be filled with you. I want to be like you. I want to think like you, talk like you, act like you, speak like you. I just want to be filled with you, hungering for righteousness. It's not just hungering for a characteristic. It's hungering to be possessed by his holiness. You're hungering for the very core of God, the very ways of God to, f- to fill your being. 
And this is what we have to understand, that that hunger for righteousness, it comes from holiness on the inside, that desire to, to express holy actions. That's holy actions expressed on the outside. That's living in righteousness, okay? It's holiness on the inside that enables me to do righteousness on the outside. So often Christians have got it flipped. Uh, People get saved and we say, okay, listen, you got to quit cussing. You got to quit watching R-rated movies. You got to, you know, and we give them this list of external things. And God never called us to tell people to clean up the outside of the cup. He wants us to get them filled with the knowledge of him on the inside because it's this hidden treasure of the glory of God in our spirit that then compels us to desire more of him and to live more like him. We we get them filled with God on the inside so that the God that's on the inside then manifests through them on the outside. I think so often Christians have just... They've just completely gotten the thing backwards. And this is where the root system of hypocrisy even lies, is that the outside of of the cup is clean. But Jesus, he he, he rebuked the Pharisees, and he said, you are whitewashed walls. They're, They're not actually fully painted, that when any rain comes in, we get to see all the flaws in the wall. You are, you are caskets filled with dead men's bones. It looks good on the outside, but on the inside, it's death. You love to clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is filled with hypocrisy. This is not the kingdom of God. What it is, it's a hunger to be filled with your holiness so that I can express you. And that's when righteousness is manifest. From the inside out, not from the list of do's and don'ts. We try to tell people to clean it up on the outside and and their hearts are away from God. That is not Christianity. This only comes, the power of this only comes by the power of the cross, by a converted soul, by a born again spirit. I remember getting saved and all of a sudden something happened inside of me that was compelling me to want to do different on the outside. It wasn't because they gave me a list. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. It was none of that. On the inside, something had changed. And, and all of a sudden, I did, it's like I couldn't sin as good anymore. Did you? Do you know what I'm talking about? I was good at sinning before. I had no problem with it. But I get born again, and then I try the same thing. And oh, that felt so bad. Because I had someone else living in there. He goes, hey, that's not me. That sinful action's not me. That's flesh and that's the devil. And some change had taken place in here that made my language want to be different. It made my ambitions want to be different. It made my, my, my soul desires want to be different. And that's how we have to conceive of this thing, that we hunger for righteousness. We hunger for God to fill us, for for us to become more like him. There's an old worship song that says, I want to be just like my father. I want to be just like my father. And And I can remember singing that old song and just weeping. I want to be a man like you. And just, just recognize, in the recognition, I'm not like you, but I want to be. Make me like you. And that, that song, over and over, Father, make me just like you. Daddy, make me just like you. Because whatever I produce in my own self, whatever I produce in flesh is death. Flesh begets flesh. Spirit begets life in spirit. That's righteousness that's the outworking of holiness in our heart. 
Ultimately, righteousness is expressing and living by the Sermon on the Mount. It's living by the value system of the kingdom. It's living in, in spiritual mourning, spiritual poverty, meekness, hunger for righteousness. Uh, ultimately, a righteous life is walking out the value system and walking out the treatise of the kingdom, living this way. Here's the interesting thing about righteousness. When you actually hunger for righteousness, it begins to manifest in you and through you. And then here's what happens. When you begin to live righteously, Jesus promised us. It's kind of interesting. He takes us right from the fourth core value to the eighth because he says, blessed are you when men persecute you for righteousness sake. <laughs> Hunger for righteousness will escort you right. You, you, you hit number eight just by doing number four because here's the thing. A righteous lifestyle in this age will attract persecution no matter what. You don't have to go looking for it. Christians that want to go stir up trouble and try to make a mess and have people like, you know, just, they just get arrogant and bold and cocky and then they just try to make a mess and then people are speaking against them. They go, oh, persecuted for righteousness sake. I go, no, no, persecuted for arrogance sake. Because if you live righteously, you don't have to go pick a fight. It'll come to you. Satan hates that. The manifestation of the kingdom come as a human being who would no way act like God, but now something's happened to them on the inside that's now causing them to act like God, that's when the kingdom has come. The, the kingdom comes in a human heart, and that heart manifests righteousness in the earth, and Satan, when he sees that, he takes aim at that. Persecution, you don't have to go looking for it. It will come looking for you, I promise. Amen. This hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it's, it's recognizing your own spiritual poverty. It's living in spiritual mourning. It's walking in meekness until the whole of your trajectory is make me just like you. I hunger and thirst to be just like you. All right. Last one for tonight. Y'all still with me? All right, Matthew 5, verse 7, we're going to look at mercy. Now, again, thinking about that chiasm, that chiastic structure, hunger for righteousness is the, to me, the pinnacle of our Godward action. Make me just like you, Jesus. It's the expression of love, that, that value, make me just like you. It's the, it's the pinnacle of our Godward uh, action. Mercy is the pinnacle of our manward action. Mercy. Mercy. How many love mercy? Oh, I love mercy. I love his mercy toward me. But the thing about this value, it's actually predicated on his mercy toward, toward us, but that's not what this value is. This value is being merciful towards others. And when I first had to come to grips with this value, I thought, I don't, I don't know if I love being merciful towards others. Uh, do, I don't, in fact, I'm not even sure if I've ever, when I first came to contact with this, I was like, have I ever actually done mercy? Because here's why. To do mercy means you have to be done wrong. In other words, if, if I haven't been done wrong, I don't even get to do mercy. Do you see what I'm saying? So, somebody goes, oh, man, I'm sorry I did that, and, and, and we'll go, oh, I forgive you. And 99% of the time, it's not even something we care about. I forgive you. You know, you, I had two Coke Zeros in the refrigerator. My son drank them both. Oh, Dad, I drank your Coke Zeros. Like, it's not big mercy for me to go, you are forgiven, my son. I go, this is Coke Zero. I wanted one, but who cares? I mean, maybe the Lord in his kindness will go, you were really merciful about those Coke Zeros that one time. I'll go, eh. Maybe he's kind like that. He is kind like that, so maybe that qualifies. But, but, but really, mercy is when somebody has done something to you that's deserving of judgment. And instead, we give them clemency. 
And I remember coming to grips with this going, I don't even qualify for doing mercy until I'm done wrong, bonafide, done wrong. Then I get to offer mercy. Wow. Blessed are the merciful. They shall obtain mercy. This is my definition, or this is my expression of of mercy. It's showing kindness, gentleness, and forgiveness toward those who deserve judgment. Toward those who deserve judgment. Now the Lord promises not to let the guilty go free. It's in his name in Exodus 34. It says, by no means clearing the unrepentant guilty. But the first uh, attribute of his name is the Lord, the Lord God, merciful. He's always willing to clear the guilty. That is a shocker and an amazing, mind-blowing thought about who our God is. He's always willing to clear the guilty. Now, as it relates to whatever, how we would say salvific mercy, there has to be this willingness on our behalf to turn from our wickedness to experience his mercy. That's how God enacts mercy upon us. And his mercy is lavish. It's rich. But here's the thing. Our activity of forgiveness is not predicated on another's repentance. Jesus made this super clear. The disciples say, how many times shall my brother sin against me in a day and I forgive him? Peter goes, like seven? It's like a whole bunch, right? Like, like seven at least. You know, Peter's about like one, two, three, like five, like even more, seven. Jesus goes, eh, 70 times seven. Uh, 490 times, Jesus? The 490 isn't the math. Some of us are very hyper-literal, and we're like, dude, you're on 489 times I've forgiven you today, and you are about to run out. That's not what Jesus' point was. Jesus' point was more than you can really count in a day. You forgive, and you forgive, and then you forgive again. Holding someone in unforgiveness is actually a sentence, a a, a jail sentence for yourself. It actually is never a jail sentence for that one. We always think, well, I'm just not gonna forgive them. And they they don't even know it or they don't even care. They did you wrong. So it's important that we get in contact with God's mercy toward us his generous forgiveness and mercy towards us so that we can liberally offer it to others so that we can stay out of the bondage that unforgiveness roots in our lives. And I have watched, I mean, I've done this for 25 years. I've sat in counseling times with believers for 25 years. And I mean, so often, I don't know the high percentage when, when I, I'm talking to somebody, they got a problem, there's something in their soul, they can't get it worked out. The highest percentage of time, there's some unforgiveness in there that's just snaring them and binding them and putting them in prison. And there's this freedom that mercy will offer, that offering forgiveness does for your own soul, releasing the guilty. There's something about that. Because we've experienced our own release, he calls us to release others and to have mercy. And so we show kindness and gentleness and forgiveness to those who deserve judgment. And so here's the thing. The standard by which we show mercy is the standard by which we've been shown mercy. Matthew 18, 33, Jesus said, so Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Is in the parable. Luke 6, 36, he says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. So often people will say they didn't, 
They didn't repent. I won't forgive. And that is not what we're called to do. We're called to offer mercy as a pathway to someone's uh, repentance. It's the goodness of God that brings you to repentance. So we're to offer mercy as a pathway to someone's redemption. Think about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not parade itself. Love does not, what, take into account a wrong suffered. What is Paul doing for us in 1 Corinthians 13? He's explaining to us how we live in love. If I sum that up, patient, kind, not exalting self, and not taking into account wrong suffered, if I wrap that up into a package, you know what that's called? Mercy. Mercy. And I would just tell you over the years, times when I've been unmerciful, times when I've been unloving, impatient, easily angered, it never produced the righteousness of God through me, nor did it produce the righteousness of God in others. But when I've offered mercy, there's something that's happened in my own soul of liberty and I've watched it crash in on someone else's heart and break a stony heart and bring it to repentance. Mercy is powerful. My, uh, my, uh, my son, when he was young, you know, we, we followed the book of Proverbs, you know, and their discipline and the, you know, the, the book of Proverbs says, if you, if you use the rod, you won't kill your kid. <laughs> You'll drive foolishness far from him. Now, I know that's probably not very popular in public circles right now. And I get it, but the Bible is true and it's real. And you, and you, so, you so discipline in love. And this one particular time, I was gonna give my son the rod and the Lord stopped me. He'd done something rebellious. We always discipline rebellion, never discipline you never discipline uh, mistakes, only rebellion. And uh, he'd done something wrong, rebellious, and we were gonna discipline. And um, uh, the Lord stops me before I get to it, and he says, give yourself the rod instead of him. Oh, uh, <clears throat> what? Give yourself the rod instead of him. And I remember I had shorts on. There's a reason why you give the rod on the bum, because there's a lot more padding back there. I decided I would hit my leg. Don't do that. <laughs> it hurts. So I did, we would do a certain number of licks. I did all the licks on my leg. And I told my son, I go, okay, you know what? I'm gonna take the rod for you. And I put my leg out. Pow. After the first one, he went, pow. And man, my eyes start watering because this hurts. This is no joke. That is a tender spot. By the second one, he goes, ah, screaming, breaking, shattering in front of me. Pow, stop, pow. And I give all the licks on my leg and like the last several, I'm like, ow. And he's broken. Daddy, no, daddy, no. Why'd you do that? I said, because Jesus took your sin and my sin on himself. And I wanted you to see what that was like to experience mercy when you deserve judgment. Do you know, he's 21 and he brought that up to me like two weeks ago. That was like when he was five. The power of mercy to break a heart is like nothing else. You know what gets us in the way of, of being able to show people mercy? Our own self-righteousness. Uh, I'm just gonna get in your business this last little bit just for fun, as if I haven't yet. When we exalt ourselves in our own belief, in our own goodness, we are not willing to offer mercy. 
what we offer is judgment. We lose perspective and we imagine that we've obtained mastery in some sort of area of spiritual discipline or some sort of you know, area of righteousness. We think that we've got the mastery and so they are you know, broken and so I'm justified because of my mastery in righteousness to release judgment on them. I'm God's vessel of judgment. And we step right into self-righteousness and right out of the value of mercy. And our propensity to self-righteousness causes us to withhold mercy. I said this in the notes, self-righteousness fueled by arrogance repels God even though it uses religious sounding words and practices a religious posture. Self-righteousness was the very sin of the Pharisees. You will not offer mercy if you're puffed up in self-righteousness. A self-righteous person carries internal judgments while expressing a kind demeanor. How do I know that so well? Because I've done that so many times. Internally judging. Well, just praise God, uh uh-huh. And on the inside, just keeping the checklist. And we we vaunt ourselves. We build ourselves up. I'm better than that. I'm not like them. I'm not, uh, 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 uh. And, and, And God, the whole time is going, you need to repent. You need to humble yourself. You need to get back to your spiritual poverty. You need to get back to your spiritual mourning. You need to get back to that that place of hungering for righteousness and get the right perspective so you can be merciful. The antidote to self-righteousness is coming to a revelation of the greatness of God's mercy shown to us through the cross. The revelation of mercy shown to us causes gratitude to break forth in us and then it causes mercy to manifest through us. When we realize that the cross of Jesus Christ wasn't about all of their sin, it was about yours. That God had to be put to death because of the grotesque nature of your own sin. The level of mercy shown to us While we were yet sinners, Christ died. That revelation of the depth of the grossness of our own sin and Jesus' act of mercy then compels us to be merciful. It's not about what you can get. It's not about what you deserve. It's about hungering for righteousness and manifesting his nature, mercy. I was just sitting there under this today thinking about love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And how often I've stepped into the seat of judge and jury thinking about other people and all the while the Lord was just wanting me to get the right perspective and extend mercy, to be the lifeline, to invite them out of their dark place, not judging, but inviting them into the love of God, inviting them into the mercy of God. Beloved, this is the value of the kingdom of God, that we would be merciful. It's, it's unthinkable, just think about this, it's unthinkable that Christians carry the reputation for being some of the most judgmental, unmerciful people. It's, I mean, it's horrifying. And it's because we don't know mercy and we're filled with self-righteousness. I wanna come out of every version of self-righteousness and I wanna, I wanna extend that lifeline of mercy to a world that's sinking and drowning without hope, without help. Blessed are the merciful. They shall receive mercy, and I didn't even talk about it, how he ties this requirement of being merciful to our reception of mercy. And I'll just end with this. There's more to be said on this topic, but I understand that there is a great tension between being merciful 
and being a, a steward of God's mercy and not compromising by being too passive or impatient. This line of mercy is only empowered by the grace of God. Because so often we think, well, I'm just gonna be merciful, and what we end up doing is facilitating people in their sin. Instead of, in mercy, calling them to account and calling them out of their sin. That's called being a peacemaker. Which is why I believe he tagged those two together. Oh, praise God. I want to be like him. How many want to be like him? Amen. All right, well, let's pray and ask him to help us be like him. Because after that, we need it. Lord, we look at you and we marvel. We look at you and we are in shock. Because these values, they don't come from men. It's evident to me that no man wrote the Bible because no man would come up with that. No man would come up with hungering and thirsting for righteousness. No man would come up with meekness. No man would come up with mercy. But Lord, we ask you, conform us more to the image of your son. We wanna live in recognition of our spiritual poverty, not act like we've got it all going on when we don't. We want to be humble and take upon us your yoke, that yoke of meekness. We wanna learn from you, Jesus, you who are meek and lowly of heart, and that will take care of so much of the traffic in our souls. We'll have rest for our souls. Just get over trying to act like we're something that we're not. We wanna be meek. We wanna hunger for your ways to walk like you, to talk like you, to act like you. And we wanna extend mercy to people instead of judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not a sacrifice. Lord, put these things so deeply in our souls and compel us by your grace to walk in them. Thank you for your values. There's no one like you. Thank you for helping us. We repent for where we haven't lived these values and we tell you we want to live them. We sense your kindness and your goodness to enable us to do so. We give you thanks, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. All right, God bless you. We can be dismissed.